Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are in our respective spots in the world. Yeah, in our respective corners of the land of, you know, gradual vaccination. Yeah. The end of all this. We just recorded last week's show. uh, What was it? Yesterday. Mm -hmm. So, nothing really has happened all that much in the meantime. (laughs) My uh, the old dog uh, has been having seizures, as you okay. I think I've told you. Well, yeah. I we got him on new meds at the beginning of the year, and so we went fourteen weeks without a seizure. That, and that's administering medicine to him every eight hours. Wow, which is you know a thing. Once you once you're maintaining a chart for your dog, but it's sort of the deal, right? He's sixteen years old. And mm-hmm. so, but there's a, this particular medicine, it's called Keppra for anybody who cares, mm-hmm. uh, does have an efficacy fall off after about three to four months. And so we're in that catchment now. So now he's had, he's starting to have seizures again, although they're wow. a little, they've been a little more mild. And, uh, so we're trying to figure out what to do next. He's and, an old dog. He is an old dog. This is all a one way path. And I, re- and he, 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 like, he can't do stairs anymore. Yeah. He'll go down, but he can't come up them. So the reality of course is that I, I carry my dog three or four times a day now. Every time he needs to go, wants to go upstairs or something. So, yeah, I'm I'm grateful for being home through this. Right. You know, you think about what our lives are like in the before times. Mm. I, I have to wonder if at some point she who must be obeyed wouldn't have said like you need to come home and take care of your dog. But mm. the good news is I've been here and we've been able to do all this. So right. I don't know how much longer you get. This is because you know his body's still functioning pretty well. His brain is shorting out. Yeah. And that's sort of the deal. So, um, his, does he have any, any more interest in bears? He would if he could see them. And I should show you this great video clip because his, his eyesight's very limited and so forth. And there was a squirrel on the deck. Now, you have to understand how great an offense we're actually talking about. That's uh, pretty okay? big. Like, then for many, many years, there were not squirrels within a hundred yards. Yeah. They were terrified, right? This is a, an insane little creature that I, that lives with me, right? <laughs> so this squirrel is on the deck. And, and he's prancing around like, yeah, he's, been, yeah, he's yeah. doing his thing. And the dog <laughs> comes up the ramp because the dog can't do stairs, right? So I right. built a little ramp out the back. Mm-hmm. He's coming up the ramp. And so the squirrel just sort of slips off the deck. The dog's going along, and he knows there's something up, but he doesn't know what it is. Yeah. And he gets to the middle of the deck, and he stands there for a minute, and he just lets out one bark, and then he goes inside for <laughs> it's a It's an insurance bark. Well, it's just to let you know. It's like, I know you're out there, you darn whippersnappers, and I don't like it. I don't know what you are, but yeah. woof. And now, I'm going to go get some Metamucil. And then he went. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm grateful that he can't see anymore because he would try and he would hurt himself. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's he elderly. Much. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get things rolling here with a little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man. What do you got? So, what do investors read? They read the Wall Street Journal, right? Okay. People who want to keep up with the news, they read the New York Times, they read the Washington Post, they read their newspaper, you know, they go online, they read stuff, you know, and I'm talking about like when you got, we're busy people, right? We're all Mm -hmm. developers here. We have a limited amount of downtime where we think, you know, I think I'd like to read something new, right? just find something new. So, for us... There's Powell Borker's Awesome Repos. What? A repo of repos. A curated list of categorized repos out there in the world that is extremely vast. You can't get through all of these things in your lifetime. This is a lot of repos. It's a lot of repos. (laughs) So you have an index. And now let's just, just the A's are API and awesome. So, (laughs) so just go to public APIs, a a collective list of free APIs. This is just the list. Now there's an index by category. Okay. And there's about 20 or so in there. Just the curation effort for all of this. I would uh, bring your attention to dog facts. 
Random, random dog facts. API. An API that returns random dog random facts <laughs> with usage and an example. <laughs> okay. So, not every API in here is critical to no, the survival of the This species. is what I'm saying. This is summer reading for geeks. <laughs> Fact. Many foot disorders in dogs are caused by low, long toenails. Hmm. <laughs> I just picked one. There are thousands, <laughs> thousands of repos to pique your interest. You know, if you're passing some time, you know, you got to sit on the toilet for a while and you don't want to read blogs and Twitter. Just jump in here, man, and life will be happy. That's funny. I love it. That's Isn't that great, cool? Dude. Yeah, <laughs> great find. <laughs> Thanks to uh, Brian McKay for finding this one for me. Uh, yeah, it's always can count on the app V-Nexters. Yep. So, who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1332, the one we did back in August of 2016 with one Paul Stovall. Maybe you've heard of him. We were talking about multi-tenancy apps and also, you know, the role that uh, Octopus Deploy could really play in, in making your life easier when you're trying to deal with multi-tenancy. It's a hard problem, right? No two ways about it. Got a lot of great comments on that show. And uh, this one is from Miles. And give it a delete. It's a few years ago where he says, thanks for the great episode. Multi-tenancy is not a topic discussed in its own right. And seeing as this is episode 1332, the first time that happened on .NET Rocks. Well, you know, back in 2005, multi-tenancy wasn't a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even worse, it's typically seen as a ramp-up phase issue. Once it's dealt with, it's considered done. I think this is a shame, really, because it's one of those topics where technical architecture concerns, economic business needs, and user experience meet in a way that us geeks can actually relate to. Yeah. You know you know what the problem of multi-tenancy is? Mm. Is that it sounds like a simple problem. Like, it's a total bike shed problem. Everybody thinks a bike shed is simple, and, it's, and they all have an opinion about it. But until you really get into building one, you don't really know. And real multi-tenancy is really quite hard. Yeah. Miles goes on to say, my company is currently getting started on the move to the cloud. Admittedly, this is five years ago. Okay. So, we're moved to the cloud. It was still a, a conversation you had. After we finally realized in our current already underperforming setup simply wasn't going to scale to our needs. And trust me, our customers don't see this as a, quote, future problem, hmm. which is an opaque way of saying, I think, all of his customers are already complaining. <laughs> uh, we've even recognized that our current multi-tenancy solution is an important part of the problem. Still, after today, I start to understand all the things we have not addressed yet. In our current case, things get complicated by the fact that some of our customers share huge amounts of streaming data with each other, and they expect to see it in real time. Separating them completely from the database on upward has not produced the desired effects. And as a Scrum Master, I wonder whether we are actually learning the right lessons from our past mistakes. Hmm. So please bring this up the next time you have Udi Dehan on, or dare I even wish Eric Evans, interesting, hmm. uh, back on the show. It may seem a bit specific, but in my experience, it is these questions and the following decisions that make the difference between a good-looking architecture diagram and an actual, and maybe even long-term, value recognized by the users. Yeah. We haven't had Udi on in a long time either, man. We it's haven't. It's an interesting thought. So, and, and admittedly, five years is a long time to wait, Miles. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> for that. But I also appreciate... I think your company's in good hands, man. I read your message and think Miles is thinking about the hard problems. That he's thinking about what's the value to the user rather than the elegant architecture. Right. Are we addressing the issues of multi-tenancy that actually help us build a better customer experience? Like, is it, that is the way to think about it. I'm, sh I'm hoping that five years on, you've got this solved and, uh, and all is well. Yeah. So, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Richard Campbell. Send us a tweet. And uh, make sure you clip those dog's toenails. Yeah. Especially those dew claws, the ones that will actually grow up into their pads, which is really bad. Yeah. And I learned you know what that. I got for Zach now? Yeah. I've got toe grips. Okay. You want to know what toe grips are? 
Sounds like a Klingon lunch special. Nice. Dr. Busby's toe grips. They are little um, bits of uh, rubber that fit over the nails to give his paws more traction on the hardwood and linoleum floors. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. So, he he doesn't slip out quite as much, which, you know, it wasn't a problem when he was younger, but when he's old, that's really hard on him. So You guys don't, like, dress him up in costumes and stuff. (sighs) He's not that kind of dog. (laughs) Put, like, a mask on him. Well, you know, there was periods where every so often she would decide he needed a raincoat until I actually showed – I walked him in the rain for an hour till my coat had failed and I was wet and he was still not wet, Mm. right? He's from Scotland, comes with a built-in raincoat. That's right, yeah. I actually walked him until his coat failed. It was over two hours in the rain. And and it was only his head that failed first. Suddenly, you could see bits of his scalp. Hmm. And and then he wanted to go home because his head was getting cold. Yeah. But up till then, like the water just rolls off him. All right. Well, enough about DAGs. Let's uh, bring on our guest. Paul Stovall is the founder and CEO of Octopus Deploy, a DevOps automation software company, which he started as a nights and weekends spare time project in 2011 and now employs 100 plus people. And prior to Octopus, Paul was an independent contractor and consultant. He lives in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome back, Paul. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. This hobby you have has gotten way out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are congratulations in order, friend? Like, I've, I've read the, the press releases and the, and the story here. Like, what have you done? Yeah, uh, we had a big announcement this last week. Uh, Octopus has raised $172 million from Insight Partners, which is one of the largest uh, US venture capital firms. Um, if you're uh, Donet users might be familiar with, uh, you know, Pluralsight, uh, Xamarin, a bunch of other companies that Insight had helped on their scaling journey. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's what we announced this week. Congratulations. Wow, and and I I appreciate that you quote you mentioned both Pluralsight and Xamarin. Pluralsight having gone public with a substantial IPO offering, and Xamarin having been acquired by Microsoft for an unknown, probably pretty healthy size number. Mm. Yeah, is that uh, what's the goal? Is it one of those? Do you want to go public, or do you want to be bought, or why, why the expansion? Oh, the hard, the hard questions. Um, no, look, uh, we've. We've been bootstrapped and profitable and running a, a growing business for the last uh, coming up on ten years now, I guess. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. and quite happy with how with how everything is going. Uh, the as we started to think about what the next decade of Octopus looks like, um, that was sort of where we we sort of led to the decision to bring on an investor who kind of understood what the you know what what all the things that we're going to hit across this next decade, the things we've got to learn, uh, the things we've got to get good at. Um, right. So, yeah, so that's uh, as far as you know, being a public company or something, that's, that feels like a lot of paperwork. That's a long way down the track. Um, there's a lot of things. Right. You know, it would be our ambition, I think, to build a business that's, that's good enough to warrant investment from, from anybody. You know, that would mean that we've built something that's very high quality and uh, a very well-run business. But that's, there's a lot of milestones to hit before that. What's interesting is you did bootstrap. Like, you're not a startup. You were 10 years into this journey already. You have built up the company quite successfully. I mean, over 100 people. You're a long way along there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not even going to – we can go into the question of why take investment now, but do you feel like you should have taken investment earlier too? Like, did bootstrapping slow you down in growth? Hmm. You know, possibly. So, I think um, the – Generally, when you think about starting a startup, there is this idea that you've got to go and put a pitch deck together and start pitching to to VCs and sort of ask for money, right? Like building a startup is this mm. sort of game, and if you can convince someone to give you some money, you can you can kind of start building it. And then, but very quickly, that puts companies on a on a path of needing to kind of go through that process again every every eighteen months or so, right? Because Sure. As soon as you take on that investor, you're sort of going to be put on a path where you've got to build a business that's um, that's not necessarily profitable, but but really focused on growth. Uh, and so you're right. going to be spending beyond your means as a company, which means in 18 months you'll you'll run out of money and be back to doing the same thing. And the failure rate of companies doing that is really high. Like between a Series A to a Series B to a Series C, there's like an 80% fall off rate at each one of those those milestones. So there's a very high chance that a company that's raised a really great Series C isn't in business for to raise the Series D um, or isn't able to to make that funding round. But that's, I guess, the game you're playing there is you're saying we've got a business that 
that's going to be worth billions of dollars and we're going to try and build it really quickly as fast as possible, uh, maybe because there's a lot of competition in the space or it's a, you know, a space that's growing really fast and, and it's a bit of a land grab. Uh, and so we're going to aim for this sort of one in a thousand outcome, uh, but if we make it, we'll, we'll build a really valuable business. That that wasn't our goal. Like I, uh, when I was eighteen, I used to listen to to Donet Rocks as I was uh, studying for final years of high school. And you know, for for me as a kid growing up in a country town, the idea that you could uh, build a life making software and selling it um, was a really enticing thing. You know, software naturally is not a capital intensive business. You need a laptop. You need an internet connection. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't necessarily need to raise a lot of money. You don't need, you're not building a factory or ordering hardware components. I mean, this is this is why the the whole dot com boom. Like Netscape was the one that sort of showed that the first time. It's like, hey, here's a browser for the for the internet uh, over the web, and we distribute it over the web, and you get updates over the web. Right. Like we have a minimal operating infrastructure now. Yeah. Yeah, like it, naturally these businesses don't lend themselves to being capital intensive. And so that was the the approach we took, you know. So 2011, uh, it was a spare time project. I was blogging about it. Um, a lot of people listening to the show might have even tried those early versions of Octopus. It was purple. My sister designed the logo for it, you know, uh, but it worked <laughs> and it solved people's problems. And then in 2012, uh, we started selling licenses to it. And then from that point on, we were we were profitable and we just – Plugged away at that in 2014, started hiring some people, uh, and then just kind of grew and grew and grew from there. And, you know, we were, uh, we sort of like to say, you know, every dollar that we've used to build Octopus today has come from our customers, which is really great. We've never mm-hmm. had to put a pitch deck together. We've never had to go to investors and say, Hey, you know, we want to, we want to keep playing the game. Can you please give us some money? We go to our customers and we say, Hey, I hope you still find our product valuable and as long as they do we get to be in business forever because we're, we're profitable we have that that optionality uh, and i think it also i guess for where we are in our personal lives it also then meant we could go as fast or as slowly as we liked so i yes mm-hmm. we perhaps could have grown quicker if we'd raised a lot of funding in the early days but i'd probably be a lot more tired we might have done a lot of things wrong you know that that growth can can be quite damaging too well and and yeah, there's no guarantees on any of those things. Like I, th- I sort of look at WhatsApp as your sort of ideal case of like the modern Silicon Valley kind of company. Because there's definitely been different stages. Like I mentioned Netscape as the beginning of that in the 90s. But that period is long since over. When I look at the modern age, it's like WhatsApp is founded in 2009 on the idea of doing secure messaging. They get funding out of Yahoo right out of the bat. Right. And build a small team to sort of write it right. And the entire duration of that company is five years. They're gone by 2014. They're bought for a three comma number by Facebook. Right. Right. Like you, it's the ultimate win, but it's also the ultimate unicorn. Right. Like they, they base these don't exist. Yeah. This should not be your business plan. No, and these are the stories they get attention because of the large sums involved. But often what's sort of not covered is, is all the sort of failure. Uh, failing, failing companies that happen along the way. Oh, yeah. The, the vast majority of cases, like the 99.9% that don't do a WhatsApp. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, you, uh, if you had the choice, let's say I want to build a business that is worth, you know, $10 million. It maybe makes a million dollars in revenue a year, but it's profitable and I can mm-hmm. run it for as long as I like. And my customers are going to love what we're doing. Uh, and it's going to be fun to come to work each day. And I have a, you know, from year to year, I have a 90% chance of being in business, let's say, um, versus, you know, I'm going to kind of aim for this billion dollar outcome, but there's really low chance of still being in business uh, and a really low chance of, of success. I mean, that's the venture capital model is is uh, is built around that, right? We're going to fund a lot of companies, many of which will fail, but some will succeed with these really uh, outlandish returns. Um, but mm-hmm. your personal risk- But it's also why they demand such an outlandish return, Right. You could have a high failure rate if you have a 10% chance of having this extraordinary return that pays for a lot of failure. Yeah. Yeah. I just question having been involved in this aspect of the business in one form or another for quite some time, whether you're not propagating failure too, right? That, that you increase the risk of failure by pressing these organizations so hard for these kinds of returns or make them sick. Yeah. Make them do things that are unhealthy to their customers and their employees. Yeah. I think if you, as a founder, uh, there's a really important decision you have to make. You have to figure out, are you, are you building the type of business 
like a web browser, like a, a secure messaging system, where getting mass adoption as quickly as possible is the most important thing. Like what the product does is perhaps kind of secondary to how quickly you can kind of get it into the hands of every person around the world. Well, and, and only certain products does that make sense for, right? Yeah, a lot a lot less than we probably naturally think. And And if that is what you're doing, if you are building a WhatsApp, you need to do that. You need to do that really quickly. You need to raise as much funding as possible. And whoever wins is going to be whoever can raise the most and spend the most on on sales and marketing. Right. That race land grab. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of businesses, especially businesses that kind of touch on developer tooling, where I, I don't think that's necessarily true. But because uh, I guess the venture capital industry as a whole has this sort of goal of, uh, you know, it's in their interest for people to think if I need to start a business, I need to raise capital. I need to, to take on an investor. Um, that's sort of become the default. And I don't think it necessarily should be. I think the default for a lot of businesses should be we'll, we'll sort of fund it with customer revenue as much as possible. Well, and the other side of this is should you need funding for some reason, the more you validate your business model by making something that customers want that they're willing to pay for, the better off you are ultimately as the owner to say, I have a value and a growth path. The, you know, really the question is why would inserting more money into this be beneficial. Yeah. Which really leads us to the main question, Paul. After all 10 years of success, what have you done? And why? <laughs> like you you've taken on a lot of that's a lot of money, friend. Yeah. Why did you feel that you needed it? I mean, you must have a plan for it. We have a plan for it, but the company doesn't need the money actually. So, um so the way that we thought about it for a long time was about about Sort of from 2016, 2017, we started to get noticed by a lot of venture firms, even though we weren't actively doing anything to kind of gather that attention. You know, we were barely struggling to figure out how to market to our customers, let alone uh, investors. And we've never put a pitch deck together. We've never gone to investors and said, hey, we want to we want to raise some funding. But we got noticed and a lot of firms would start to reach out. And our typical answer would be, hey, we can fund our growth. You know, we're growing really well. We're happy with where things are at. Um, when we look at benchmarks, we're doing incredibly well. Uh, and we can fund our growth from our own balance sheet. You know, thank you. We don't, we don't need outside capital. And that was the standard answer we gave. And a lot of uh, firms, we'd still sort of build relationships with them though and, and get to know them a bit just because we figure at some point the growth path that we've been on, sort of if that continues for the next few years, we, start, we do start to become a very large company. And as doing mm-hmm. that, you know, there's just so many challenges that you hit along the way that bringing on an institutional investor might be a sensible thing to do. But you want to do it on your own terms. You want to do it when you're ready. And the main consideration I had is, you know, I wanted to make sure that if we did bring on an investor, the firstly, the timelines for the investment that made it a sensible investment for them, it wouldn't be pushing for growth that was beyond what we thought was reasonable and right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, But really, so I guess where we got to was the end of – 2020 we were thinking a lot about 2021 and and forward and you know you can build a business uh a really long way just by building a really good product and being really responsive to customers that's that's the thing that we've learned you don't have to be amazing at marketing you don't have to be amazing at sales it would be really great we'd love to be better at those things um but we've gotten this far just sort of on on really good product really good um customer support well and and part of that has been great word of mouth like I know you don't think of yourself as a sales and marketing org, but people know what Octopus Deploy is, even if they don't use it. So, somewhere along the line, your the story of your product has gotten really coherent. Any marketing person would be proud of that. I'm, I'm glad it appears that way on the outside. <laughs> oh we know that you you you, i know you're a duck man the top looks great but the feet are moving (laughs) (laughs) so one of the interesting things that have happened to us over the years is you know we've um as we've as we've expanded within organizations our customers become not just our best marketers in terms of word of mouth but they become our best salespeople. so they adopt octopus they have success with it you know they you know it might be a a a team lead that brings it onto a a single team within an organization (laughs) and then they start telling their boss about it and and it kind of goes up through the organization to the point where they decide Mm -hmm. we're standardizing an octopus for all of our deployments enterprise-wide and we find ourselves working with these really large enterprises going through you know legal negotiations and uh and all the kind of stuff that comes with enterprise sales without actually having an enterprise sales team in the first place 
uh, and, and in many ways kind of letting those customers down. So this poor developer who is a huge champion of Octopus and really wants to see more of it within their company because they're experiencing, you know, faster deployments, things more reliable, all that kind of stuff, uh, sort of find themselves without anyone from Octopus able to join that call and help them uh, convince their boss why they should use more of it. And so that wow. kind of points to, for us as a company, not just being great at product, not just being great at sort of customer service, but but being really good at engaging in the sort of enterprise sales go-to-market motion. And so so coming back to the question, this is sort of where we started to think a lot about, okay, if we really wanted to get good at this and not keep figuring things out for ourselves and making the same mistakes that a lot of companies make, maybe it does make sense to bring on an investor that knows how to do that. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't the point that the company got to a point where it, it needed the money. It's still very profitable. Uh, it's still uh, able to fund its own growth from its own balance sheet. But it really did feel like time to bring on an investor that that had that experience because, you know, my background is, is product and technology. Sure. So bringing a different skill set to the table, which is certainly advice I've given when talking about taking investment is it's not, you know, money's money and there's a money in a lot of places. The real distinction between one set of money and another set of money is the skills that come with that money. You know, nobody's going to make a substantial investment in your company if they don't also get a say in your company. Yeah. And you want that say to be different than you, knowledgeable about things you're not knowledgeable about. Yeah, you want a you want a board that you can go to with a hairy problem and and get real really informed help on how to navigate mm-hmm. and solve that problem. Um, you know, a, a bunch of random people, or you know, sometimes you'll see a company raises a round of of funding, but it's made up of this mishmash of like six or seven different investors none of which really have that right. skin in the game to really help the company with the issues it has. Um, that's, that's not the path we wanted to go down. We, yeah, we wanted to bring on an investor that, that would be genuinely helpful. Well, and you, you can't argue with the, with the credibility of insight, right? Like they, they are kind of the mar, a, a very marquee late stage investment organization. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the stuff they do well. And I think, um, especially when it comes to sort of North American enterprise sales and marketing, they, they, they kind of bring a lot of experience there. What we liked about them and what made them a, a good fit though was also there, there's actually really good values alignment. Like they like that we're profitable. They like that we're not going to be on this 18 month, you know, needing to raise another round and another round in pursuit of sort of mm-hmm. unsustainable inorganic growth. Um, they like that it's a real, you know, people, our product is free to start with and it'll stay free and, uh, and then at some point. Yeah, but, and that's a sustainable model, right? That's the modern software model these days. Yeah. And uh, Paul, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Oracle. When you're starting up in the tech world, having all your options open makes a big difference. So why let a cloud partner limit how you can grow? Oracle for Startups provides stable, scalable cloud infrastructure with multi-cloud flexibility, so you can build your technology any way you choose. And at 70% off for two years, there's nothing holding you back. Grow your way with cloud that won't lock you in. Check it out at www.oracle.com slash go to slash netrocks. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. And we're talking to our friend Paul Stovall about, I guess, the next decade of Octopus Deploy. So, 10 years in, brought in a partner. It sounds like you you made a business plan together as part of this agreement. Yeah, sort of. I think the as part of uh, taking them on, we thought a lot about our growth and the path that we wanted to go on and whether that would make mm-hmm. sense to them. So, you know, the economics that go into, is this a good investment for any investor, um, there's a particular type of, of growth model that they're looking for and we have that mm-hmm. and we'd be disappointed if we didn't maintain that as well, right? Because it would mean we've probably, so far our customers have given us permission to stay in business and think that we, we make something valuable. If that growth was to slow down, it's probably because we've, we've dropped the ball somewhere. So we'd be disappointed in that too. Right. And so uh, the business model and, and the plans and the strategy and all of those things, you know, obviously uh, Insider on the board now, so we'll talk to them about them and, and uh, run those things through. But, it's the same plans we would have had regardless. You know, it's all the same milestones. It's all the same sort of growth metrics and all of those things. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't see them bringing new metrics to the table. I mean, they do 
offer a certain level of sophistications in areas of your company that are probably not as sophisticated. They definitely do, especially when it comes to to benchmarking, right? So as a, a sort of uh, technical founder, you can spend a lot of time sort of scratching your head thinking, okay, we've got this kind of traffic, you know, to our website and so many people are signing up and, you know, they're, they're giving us, you know, feedback about the product and it, it seems to suggest they really like it. But how does that benchmark, you know, if we, and that's something that because of Insight, uh, because of the scale at which they operate, they have a lot of companies that we can benchmark against and say, you know, uh, this company is growing at a similar rate to you, but they have higher net promoter score or something. And so that's something we really want to work mm-hmm. on. We want to improve those things. So, so definitely the ability to benchmark things and kind of give a sense of these are the priorities um, that has been quite helpful. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to just think about what are the things you want to do better. You've clearly talked about the sort of customer facing pieces. Do you see the product line broadening? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the so our, to give you an idea, so the company's a bit north of 100 people. About a bit over half of mm-hmm. that is the R&D team, so engineering design product. Uh, and then we've got a group of people who are our solutions team uh, and sales engineering. And so if you're kicking off a, a DevOps automation project, these are a, a group of people who really just understand how to use Octopus, how to integrate it with you know, Azure DevOps or Team City or GitHub Actions, and they can walk you through how to how to do all of that. So it's sort of a sort of in-house consultants for customers um, to help get started. Uh, and then we have a sales team, and those are split between North America and the UK. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but you know, one of the as we're sort of planning the year and and uh, you know our hiring plan and stuff, we had the conversation of like, do we need to hire more people in sales? And the answer is generally no. Like, we like having a small sales team. And a larger product team because we make your product better, and that makes it easier to sell. You know, if the product, <laughs> if the product does what customers are asking for it to do, it's so much easier to be a salesperson. Sure. It, but, but it does come down to other markets too. I mean, you're you're hitting some obvious markets. The question is, can you broaden those that market space? And that generally needs other sales forces. If you were going to make a big move into say South America, where there's some very interesting development going on, well, ta-da! You don't need English speaking salespeople anymore. Mm. Right, that's a different that's a different cadre entirely. Yeah, yeah. On the product side, um, I think on Run As Radio, you talked to Michael Richardson recently about the stuff we've been doing around runbooks, and mm-hmm. we realized that a, a while back that customers were using Octopus not just to automate deployments, but to automate all the other ops activities that kind of happen around keeping software running. And uh, we we would go and see customers using this and kind of using our deployment functionality to automate these other types of things that weren't deployments and realized it's there's something really powerful about saying, hey, we're doing we're trying to do DevOps within our organization, right? We've got the developers, we've got the ops right. folks, they're working together. Uh, maybe we've got someone kind of wearing multiple hats. Uh, and yet at the end of the DevOps, you know, kickoff meeting, they all go back to their desks or, or their homes and they bring up two totally separate tooling stacks that they're using to automate stuff in the same environments. And and these customers were using Octopus to do that in one place, and that was really powerful. And so we built a bunch of functionality, particularly around that, to make it more seamless and, and to work better. So there's, I think there's a lot That's of cool. areas uh, for expl- exploration, you know, because I think a lot of what we think about as continuous delivery and how we deploy software kind of came out of, well, we've got a CI server that knows how to automate a build. Let's just kind of make that do some deployment stuff. And what Octopus has been doing is, is kind of just really taking the deployment part and thinking this is actually a much more complicated problem than CI is, and certainly much more complicated than can be handled in one tool. Let's go really deep on it and let's really try and make this easy. Let's try and make it support really complicated types of deployments and try to do it really, really well. Um, so so exploring into the into the operation space has been an area we've spent a lot of time. The GitOps side of things is is something we're spending a lot of time in at the moment. Yeah, and I think you're paying attention to AI ops as well and ML ops is just like What's interesting is thinking that automation of deployment of abilities inside of an organization is a good idea all around, that all companies are effectively software companies to some degree or another, and that pipeline to get whatever you're making internally to the folks that are going to make money with it is smart. Like, you've got to get better at automating that. It's not just one thing anymore. Yeah. So... Is that the new mantra then? Deploy all the things? <laughs> we've, we've been doing that for a while. Uh, yeah. Deploy and just automate all the things. You know, if you've, if you've got yeah. to update SSL certificates on the web app that you deployed, that should be an automated thing. It should be something that, that either happens automatically or is something that gets kicked off. We're definitely beyond eight legs. 
Octopus. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what is? How do you say twenty? A twenty-legged puss. <laughs> yeah, the the dodecapus. Okay. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't put it past you that you just nailed that. I may. I think I may have. Yes. <laughs> you know, the dodecahedron is the twenty-sided die. So I think that dodecapus would be correct. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. We all have our hobbies, okay, friend. Man. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm willing. I'm willing to try and solve that problem. I'm, I'm going to register no, no, the I domain mean, you're, now. You're probably, you're probably even beyond. You know, twenty destinations. Have you ever enumerated them? Do you have that number in your head? Uh, we definitely support. All of them. So I think you know, in terms of um, integrations and all the things we we deploy to, it's it's definitely in the hundreds uh, at this point. So. Perhaps yeah. more of a siphonophore that's- kind of uh, creature, but um, and I think that's one of the powerful things. You know, if you if you take any single project, chances are you're probably deploying to a handful of things, right? You've got one project, and it's a a SQL Azure database and a SQL and, a, and an Azure website, uh, and then you maybe you've got another project which is doing some stuff on Kubernetes. But at some point, as as part of automating that pipeline, you've probably put a lot of thought into into questions like. How do we control when production deployments happen and how do we approve those mm-hmm. things and how does that meet our company's order requirements, which are all very real uh, concerns. And and so having one tool that do- deploys all of those things really well is 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 kind of the, the goal that we've set our sights on. I'm just enjoying the fact that you casually drop Siphonophore into the conversation. <laughs> right, thank you. I, I, I was being clever with the 20-legged... Uh, uh, octopus, and he dropped an aggregate creature from the deep sea, just sort of uh, casually. Uh, we, we've <laughs> no, got three we'll, kids; we'll they watch thing. a lot of octonauts. <laughs> <laughs> so, Safanafor is on the tip of your tongue. It's uh, you know you relate to that. For those who haven't seen it, what is it? So it's it's I, like this. My understanding is it's sort of a, a creature that's sort of made up of multiple creatures. So things mm-hmm. that the nectophores, yeah, things that kind of look like sponges and. Uh, jellyfish and so on and then they all kind of join together and then they specialize like one creature kind of is good at catching food another is good at digesting it and so this whole organism is sort of a, a colony if you like um, that, of independent creatures that all kind of rely on each other wow but de- de- you know deep sea stuff the ocean is weird right <laughs> you get down you start seeing some of these critters that just emerge from from the ocean uh yeah, it's they're they're astonishing, but you know I'm just still amused that they, you know Siphonophore as a business practice. You know, it's like you know how I want to organize my 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 company because it's not actually a bad description of a of a business either, where you bring together smart people and let them specialize in the thing they're extraordinary at. You usually have a lot of success. Mm. There's a book in there somewhere, Paul. I'm sure there is, <laughs> <laughs> but I I do appreciate this idea that you've helped make the DevOps revolution work, starting with, you know, the automation around deployment software, but more and more, and we, you know, they're certainly relating that conversation I had on run as about run books and those things. Just this idea that as a, as a product or a tool or an idea gestates, that there's automation to validate it and to move it through the various stages that get it out into the field for people to work with. It doesn't matter what it is ultimately. That's all good ideas. You could apply that to documents and spreadsheets as easily as you could to code. Yeah, I think that's true. If you go back to back when Agile was becoming a thing and Scrum was becoming a thing, uh, there was this real focus on we want to not spend 12 months building some software just to get feedback on it. We want to we want to do that quickly. Mm-hmm. But the way a lot of those projects would manifest uh, back when we were doing consulting you know, was that you would you would have a team, an engineering team that was kind of doing agile or doing Scrum, uh, but at the end of every two week iteration, they weren't do- able to actually deliver anything to production and get real customer feedback. Right at best, it was going to a, a business analyst or or something, or a product owner. Well, and you get the Conway's law effect, right? That however you are organized, everything you make is going to look like the organization. If there's three teams that work on the thing, there will be three feature sets. Like it's that kind of. Side effect. Yeah. Sorry, I totally derailed you on that, admittedly. But it, it is, you know, part of that. How do we build an organization and tooling around that organization that can respond to the diversity of customer need? Yeah. I think, so, we, you know, when we started, that was the, the thing we were trying to solve was, uh, at the time, setting up CI 
and source control was a really easy problem, but actually getting the stuff deployed, mm-hmm. which is really important because that's when you get feedback. That's when you can actually iterate, take the feedback and iterate on it and make the product uh, better and better. That's the problem that, that we set out to solve. But I mean, uh, this, um, this announcement is funny, right? Because uh, you spend a long time building a business and uh, there's sort of no real attention in some ways, you know, just if, let's take general media. And then you raise a round of funding and suddenly you're on the front page of newspapers, right? And everyone kind of wants to hear oh, everywhere, yeah. the story. It's a really big deal. And it's sort of like, this is just one small step in all the things we've done building a valuable business. And and to be super clear, you know, a lot of the uh, the focus has been on sort of how the company started, but actually Insight didn't invest in 2014, when it was a couple of people, they invested. Now, in Octopus, is 100 plus people, 100 really smart people who, mm-hmm. like that siphonophore, are all coming to work and all doing the best work of their lives. Hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. really thinking through, really understanding our customers, what what complex deployments look like, how can we help, how can we make the product better. Uh, constantly, that's that's the engine that that Inside invested in. I mean, I, I, this is a weird question, maybe. I mean, you're an Australian company, an Australian success story, but you took investment from what I think is an, a, as an American company. Is that an issue? Um, do, were there some uh, Australian investors like a little bent out of shape on this? Uh, Why not use an American investment company? Funny enough, there was. Yeah, there were a few There was a few stories that sort of ran of, you know, uh, this was a wake-up call to Australian uh, venture capital and, and so on. I, I don't look at it that way. So I think, you know, if, you, if, if we said, hey, we've got a business model that requires a ton of capital because we're going, you know, our next product is going to be octopuses on rocket ships or something. And that's a really capital intensive business. And therefore we need to raise a lot mm-hmm. of capital. Then of course, you know, you'd go and tap local Australian VCs, you'd go and tap overseas venture capital, you know, you'd, you'd kind of raise that capital anywhere because the goal, the thing you're looking for is capital. That's not what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. So if we look across the Australian venture community, there's a lot of really great VCs and they probably know how to build and scale a business generically but do they understand devops to the way that insight does so so you know right. one of insights uh uh you know, if you take a couple of their companies um sona source is, is one uh and mm-hmm. jfrog is another and those are really similar in space you know they if you understand how those businesses work you can probably add a lot of value to a business like octopus as well sure and and you appreciate the success that those companies have had as well yeah that's you look at the path of that that Sonar and JFrog gone on and go. That's not a bad path. I wouldn't mind being over there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so you you really <laughs> want to you don't want to bring on an investor for capital. Well, at least in our case, you want to bring on an investor because they know something that you don't know because they can add value in a way mm-hmm. that that is sort of from experience that you don't have. And so to bring on an investor who sits across both the Octopus board and the JFrog board. Or is really tightly connected to the way JFrog is, you know, encountering. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, and it's and I think it's one of the, the it's a Japanese thing, the Karetsu, this conglomerate of companies that have a trust between them, whether they work together or not, to share knowledge and support. That's a that's a pretty powerful concept, and certainly something well worth tapping. You guys wrote a uh, uh, handbook on how to be a remote first company, right? Yeah, it's it's and actually just published it. Yeah, we did. It's at handbook.octopus.com and it's actually, um, it's our company handbook. So it's what we give to employees. So what we, you know, when, when you apply for a job, uh, you, you give the company your CV, right? You sum up your, your entire, you know, couple of decades of, of experience and all the things that make you you into sort of a three or four page document that the company gets about you. But often, uh, you as the candidate don't have that same kind of insight into, the company and so uh, making our handbook public was sort of our way of saying here's our cv you know here's how we think about your career at the company and compensation here's how we think about remote work you know as far as where do you choose to work and and things like that uh here's what the feedback culture looks like um so yeah here's what leave policies look like you know all those things we just sort of figured we'd make it public and people can if they're considering applying uh for a role with us either read it and say, this company's totally for me or say, this company's not for me. And, and that's okay, but at least everyone's more informed. It's also a nice roadmap for anybody who wants to follow in your footsteps with any kind of remote first company, you know, building one from scratch. Yeah, you, we've been a remote first company since we started. And I think, um, I think as probably a lot of companies found uh, when they sort of got forced to become remote, there's a lot of really good advantages. I think a lot of a lot of folks were kind of skeptical. People won't get things done. Yeah. People won't be productive, and they definitely are mm-hmm. when when they work from home. But I think it also, yeah. I think management at a company has to generally be 
a lot better, right? You can't rely on, hey, I saw Fred come in early in the morning and he left after me. You know, he was still there when I left. Therefore, Fred's a good employee. Like that, that was never really great management in the or office. Or embezzling. We don't know where. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was never great management to begin with, but it kind of no. is the thing that people but would rely on. But you could excuse it for a long time. Yeah. But it, it also begs the question around the pandemic in general, because you've always been a remote first company. So, in some ways, I think you're probably a little more pandemic proof than most. How did the pandemic impact Octopus? Uh, not not a lot. So, from a um, obviously a, events and things like that got cancelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, from day-to-day stuff, I don't think anyone really noticed a difference. Obviously, everyone's sort of personal uh, experiences with, with the pandemic were quite different. Um but as far as you know, the, the company goes, no major differences. The one thing that we missed is uh, because we were remote, every year we would bring the whole team together in, in Brisbane for a week to really spend that time together. Right. And that is really crucial. Like it's it's amazing how important that is as far as building people's camaraderie with each other. And so uh, that's not something we've been able to do this year. And a, a lot of us who are here in Brisbane at the company, which is about, about half the company, um, We'd spend time in the office together, you know, at least one day a week or something like that. And we weren't able to do that Mm -hmm. for short periods uh, during the pandemic too. So it actually has got us uh, opening a new office because the company's grown so much um, to be able to keep, to to be able to keep doing that. We sort of realized how, how much we, we enjoy being able to be in each other's company. And has most of your hiring been in the Brisbane area? Like how far afield do you go these days? Um, So the way, the way that we think about it is uh, research and development, the sort of product side of the business. the mm-hmm. people working on that, there's a really high level of collaboration uh, that's involved. And so we've tried to kind of keep that like remote is one thing, as, as you know, time zones is the hard yeah. thing, right? Like if, if we're doing, if we were a remote company, but everyone's kind of within the same time zone, you can't really complain about much. Like you don't get to see each other too much, but at least you've got eight hours of really great overlap with each other. Right. But when you're a remote company with people in Australia and the UK and the US, like we are, and the time zone overlap is limited to a a couple of hours a day that's really hard um yeah for collaborative work especially or somebody's living an odd schedule yeah you know strange loop which is mostly a west coast of canada company had a couple of folks on the east coast and they literally just worked a different they you know they finished work at eight o'clock their time because it just worked better for them yeah yeah there's people can make it work as a company it's quite hard to say you know so i guess what we've tried to do is be quite deliberate in in where we hire people for particular mm-hmm. roles so for example so our product team is centered within australia um not just within brisbane although there's a lot of people in brisbane but also we hire folks in sydney and melbourne and perth and adelaide uh but there, and there's multiple time zones in Australia, so you've got a spread there. There is, yeah. But it's it's there's enough that you can collaborate with people as as needed. Yeah. So for the majority of their workday. Yeah. So that's being centered here, and then but when you think about support, the support team, you know, we want if you are a customer of Octopus and you and you send us an email with some hairy problem, we want you to get a response from someone who's really clever, really informed, understands the product really well, and can help you within two hours. We can't do that from Australia if it's a customer in the US and so, uh, or the UK. And so what we've done with the support team is, is that team does span um, the US, the UK, and Australia um, to be able to provide that really high level of, of responsiveness because it makes sense for that, for that team. But the time zones are hard. Like there's no getting around it. Yeah. Well, you know, China's even bigger than Australia and they're only one time zone. Although that's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> My supervillain plan is, uh, you know, if I, if I was a supervillain would be to sort of figure out some way to relocate Australia. Like just kind of drive the entire country right into the middle of the Atlantic just to get great no. time zone overlap on both sides. Oh, uh, uh, both, both North America and Europe, yeah. right? Get enough tow boats. You might. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I would argue there, the, the, there is an island like that. It's called Iceland. It's a teeny bit smaller. <laughs> a little colder. And not quite as many kangaroos. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And far more volcanoes than Australia. Far more. <laughs> this is, uh, wow. Yeah, good stuff, Paul. Yeah. Amazing story, friend. I mean, what about acquisitions? You know, suddenly that's one of the things that see that happens when you, when uh, when a finan- uh, finances get like this, and you've got money to put to work, essentially, it's a way to as a way to accelerate things. Yeah, no, no firm plans or or anything around that. It's not something we'd necessarily um, be against, but we do think. I think um, it was common 
you know, a decade or so ago for a large company to have a lot of different products. I don't think that's so common mm-hmm. these days. I think what tends to happen is the product just becomes more powerful um, over time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of finding ways to kind of add new features and and new capabilities to the product, but it's still kind of one tool and there's a lot of value in that. You know, I'm, I've set up my environments in one place and so I can do a, a lot of different things uh, with that information rather than sort of adding adding other products. And that becomes quite hard through acquisitions. I think it's hard to sort of acquire something that's written in in one programming language and then sort of try to figure out how to bolt it into a into an existing yeah. product. Yeah. Right. Well, and and although there's occasionally a great team that you want and bringing their product along makes sense, whether or not, you know, how it ultimately fits into the overall stack is another question entirely. There, there are lots of different kinds of acquisitions. That's right. But, uh, it's a tricky thing to think about too, in terms of, especially for an organization who's so deliberate about its culture mm. as to how you add people uh, from another culture to that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, we wish you the best of luck, of course. And uh, uh, it's really great news and uh, congratulations and all that. And um, maybe you come back in a year or so and tell us what you've spent it on. <laughs> <laughs> or how much of it you spent? <laughs> Nothing. All right. Yeah. Thanks, gentlemen. All right. We'll see you, Paul. Thank you, and thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a